If you have a, a Bible with you, then please turn with me to the second book of Chronicles, chapter 26. If we had Hebrew Bibles, it would be easy to find it's the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. But our Bibles follow the, the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Second Chronicles, unsurprisingly, it's found immediately after First Chronicles and just before Ezra. It's a huge privilege and pleasure for me to be with you here at Sovereign Grace. I do not say that lightly. Uh, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Uh, you've welcomed me and you've welcomed Jones so warmly and we are deeply thankful for that and I can honestly say that I give thanks to God for you with every remembrance. Before we read the passage, let me just say two or three brief things that might help us orient our thinking as we read perhaps what may be something of an unfamiliar passage to some of you. Whenever you open your Bible to read a passage, wherever it may be, there are three things that you need to be asking yourself. Number one, where am I in the immediate context of the Bible? Where am I immediately? Well, here we're in the first half of the eighth century before Christ. Isaiah has become king of the southern kingdom of Judah Judah has become a vassal state of the great world superpower Assyria. And as we will see, under Isaiah, great blessing comes initially to the southern kingdom of Judah. There is a tremendous sense of uplift, of advancement, economic advancement, political advancement, material advancement, geographical enlargement, things are on the up and up. So that's where we are immediately. But then you need to pause wherever you are in the Bible to ask yourself a second question. Where am I in the flow of redemptive history? And you'll remember how in the wake of Adam's tragic fall in the garden, the Lord God comes to the serpent, to Satan in the guise of the serpent, and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel, certainly, but he fatally will bruise your head. And so wherever we are in the Bible, we need to be asking ourselves, where actually am I in the light of this prototypical promise? God has promised one who will come and undo the tragedy of Adam's fall and who will deal with the serpent, who will bruise his head. And so when we read a passage like 2 Chronicles 26, we need to be thinking, where is this in the panorama of redemptive history? They found all their hopes 
smashed to smithereens. King David comes, and for a time, no doubt some were thinking, is he the one? What blessing has come to us? What enlargement has come to us? And that David falls disastrously into sin and disobedience and crushes the hopes of the people. And so it is also with Isaiah. He is not the one who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. We need to think immediately. We need to think biblically. But then we need to think cosmically. Because God's ultimate purpose is to unite all things again under one head, even Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.10. God's ultimate purpose from the dawn of creation and from before the dawn of creation is to restore under one head even the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a renewed, a reconstituted cosmos. We're on the way to a reconstituted cosmos. It may not seem like that. You think, well, we're in the first half of the 8th century before Christ. We're in the Bronze Age. It may be so. But in the unfolding purposes of God, we are heading to, to an omega point in the divine purpose And that omega point is the cosmic exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's what God's ultimate purpose is. You and I are his proximate purpose. Because he wants him to be the firstborn among many brothers. But his ultimate purpose is the exaltation, cosmic glory, and universal dominion of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what chapter 26 of Second Chronicles is actually all about. Let us hear the word of God. And all the people of Judah took Isaiah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Elot, And restored it to Judah. After after that the king slept with his fathers. Isaiah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Isaiah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Isaiah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness 
cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in the Shephela and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Isaiah had an army of soldiers fit for war, in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael the secretary, and Maseah the officer under the directions of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Isaiah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Isaiah and said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Isaiah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priests, and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Isaiah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rests of the acts of Isaiah from first to last, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And Isaiah slept with his fathers. They buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. He was a man who under God had seen remarkable advances. He had seen the territory of his people expand. He had seen 
the Philistine enemies vanquished. He had raised up a mighty army. He had seen not only geographical and military expansion, he had witnessed economic revival. And yet the last thing, the last thing that's said about him, he is a leper, shut out, cut off from the people of God. I want to think with you for a short time this morning about the seduction of success. I would guess every one of us here this morning knows that what matters in the life of faith, that is in the life of faith in Jesus Christ, is that it's not how well you begin, but how faithfully you end that actually is what really matters. The story of King Isaiah, who is sometimes called Azariah, is salutary for us because his life began with such promise. He comes to the throne at 16. And from that young age, he just bursts with promise. He's instructed by, by a priest, Zechariah, in the fear of the Lord. And he sees remarkable advancements. Everywhere he looks, everything he puts his hand to, prospers under God. Look at the end of verse 4. God made him prosper. He is a young man who is bursting with promise. He's greatly used by God. And yet his life ends in tragedy in exclusion, excommunication, really, from the life and the communion of the people of God. The chapter, you'll have noticed, divides into two distinct sections. First of all, verses 1 through 15 narrates for us Isaiah's triumphs. And you can just read through the triumphs. We don't have time to expand or develop them in any way. And then secondly, from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, the narrative moves from his triumphs to his tragedy. And what we need to understand is that behind the microcosmic triumph and tragedy of Isaiah, there is actually the outworking of a macrocosmic Reality. Back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God promised his people that if they were faithful to him, he would bless them. He would be with them. He would prosper them. But if they became proud, if they turned away from him, if they arrogated to themselves the privileges and rights that alone belong to the Most High, he would curse them. God's covenant with his people was this bifurcated reality. There would be blessing in the wake of faithfulness and there would be cursing, judgment, exclusion in the wake of disobedience and unfaithfulness. Let me just briefly look at, first of all, verses 1 
through 15. You'll notice in verse 3, as I said, Isaiah becomes king while a young man. He reigns for 52 years. The significant verses really are verses 4 and 5. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now notice this phrase, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. There's a little caveat. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Keep that in mind for we'll return to that. For there is an inbuilt caveat that would have made the first readers and subsequent readers who have followed the flow of Chronicles sit up and think, oh my, oh my, I wonder how this is going to end. But you could hardly think of anything more remarkable. He sets himself to seek God. The, the prophet, Zechariah, one of the earlier prophets, instructs him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And the following verses detail the prospering of the Lord in the wake of the faithfulness of this young boy, King Isaiah. And the chronicler details at some length. Maybe you get a little bit wearied with the reading and saying, well, Ian, just jump on, jump on, jump past the, the Ammonites, the Munites, and these other bits and pieces and get to the guts of the passage. Well, the chronicler says, let me pause and just detail for you how richly, how extravagantly, how expansively God blessed this young man who had sought him in the fear of the Lord. It's there for a purpose. Line upon line, line upon line. The chronicler is saying, do you get it? Are you getting it? Is it sinking in how richly, how extravagantly, how expansively God honors those who honor him? Are you getting it? Because I've got something now to tell you that you will need greatly to take to heart. The privileges and the blessings are stunning. His early promise was remarkable, perhaps even phenomenal. And then we read in verse 16, but, but, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, it's when I'm weak that I am strong. But here, it was when Isaiah was strong that he became weak. His weakness grew out of his strength. Why? Because in some way, we're not told, this is Hebrew narrative at its most frustrating. You want to stop and say, excuse me, chronicler. How did this happen? When did it begin? 
and there is a, a studied silence. It's very Hebraic in the way Hebrews retail narrative. They just want to carry you along. They want, in a sense, intentionally to frustrate the reader into asking. What about me? What about me in the midst of my, of my strength, of God prospering me, blessing me, even expansively, are the seeds of weakness being sown? We're not told how long his triumph lasted, but we are told that it ended. He grew strong and he became proud. He forgot to whom he owed all his triumphs. He forgot that he had, by the kindnesses and good pleasure of the Lord, all that had come to him and his nation. I often reflect in morning devotions, probably a text that I reflect on certainly as much as any other and perhaps even more than any other. What do you have that you did not first receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. The church in Corinth was priding itself in its gifts. It was priding itself in its talents, its abilities. And Paul says, what do you have? There is not one particle of blessedness that natively has come to you because of you. What do you have that you did not first receive? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not? Why do you boast as if you did not? He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And the chronicler specifically focuses on one particular event that revealed this unfaithfulness. He goes into the temple of the Lord and he arrogates to himself what God had decreed alone to belong to the sons of Aaron. He took it upon himself in his kingly arrogance to publicly trample on the word of the Lord, to defy the will of the Lord, to live in public flagrant disobedience to the command of God, and he goes into the temple to burn incense to the Lord. Now, I think many people might say, well, was this a big deal? Well, perhaps he shouldn't have done it. Well, yes, God said it was the sons of Aaron who were to do it, but wasn't the king just, just maybe letting a little bit of his kingship go to his head? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. God would have his people worship him not as they think he should be worshipped but as he 
has told us he wants worship. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to be creative in worship. We go back to Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, they did something similar. What did God do? He struck them down dead. Now, people might say, well, Ian, Ian, come on. This, this is the Old Testament. This is what happened in the days before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says the reason why some of you have died and why some of you are sick is because you are abusing the Holy Supper of the Lord Jesus Christ. God takes his worship seriously. John Calvin in 1543 wrote um, a remarkable and brief and very readable treatise uh, concerning the Lord's Supper. And he dedicated the book to the emperor of the day, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And in the preface, Calvin says to the emperor, your majesty, perhaps you are asking, why has there been a reformation? Luther had been raised up of God and then Calvin and others in the wake of Luther and the church in Western Europe had become split and the gospel was recovered. And Calvin asks the question, perhaps your majesty is asking, why was there a reformation? I would guess if I asked most Protestants, even evangelical Christians, the answer to that, they would look at me and think it's a no-brainer. There was a reformation because the gospel had been lost and God in his mercy was coming to recover the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the Reformation was about. No, says Calvin, it wasn't about that. It was first and foremost about this. Why was there a Reformation? God was not being worshipped according to his word. And secondly, Calvin goes on, Salvation was being hidden from the people of God. The Reformation was first and foremost about God and not about you and not about me. And this is what's happening here. Here is a man who is intruding himself into an area of worship where God had forbidden him. He was saying, I'm not going to shape and style and conform our worship according to the dictates of the Most High, I'm going to introduce something creative. The Bible never encourages creativity in worship. Our Reformed forebears called it the regulative principle. Our worship is to be regulated exclusively by the Word of God. But here is a king who decides that he's going to be a little creative. He's got the power to do it. And the rest of the chapter relates the tragic consequences of his disobedience. The priest comes to him, pleads with him, with these other 80 priests, 
men of valor. Do you know why they were called men of valor? Because nobody opposed kings in those days. He would have your head off in a moment. But the honor of God was at stake. The worship of God was, it, was, was the issue. And they confront him. And they say, what you're doing is wrong. It will bring you no honor from the Lord. But Isaiah, he becomes even more angry. And he becomes resolved in his determination to intrude himself into an area of church life that God had forbidden to him. And God afflicts him with leprosy. Leprosy of the head. Remember in Leviticus 13, there were two kinds of leprosy. Leprosy of the body, which seemed to suggest or illustrate or symbolize or pictorialize uh, the sins of the body. And then there was the leprosy of the head, which seemed perhaps to signify and symbolize and um, pictorialize intellectual rebellion and sin. And so it was with this man. He had become proud. He had high thoughts of himself. He looked around and he thought, my, what a good boy am I. Haven't I done well? My congregation is flourishing. People look up to me. They think I'm somebody. And I think they're right. I really am. And God afflicts his head. God takes sin seriously. God takes his worship seriously. Now the question I want to ask, and I better watch my time because this is the introduction. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the question I want to ask is this. What went wrong with Isaiah? Now the text tells us, doesn't it? When he was strong, he grew proud. He grew proud. And we know what pride is, don't we? Pride is at heart self-idolatry. Pride is peripheralizing God and centralizing self. Pride is the mother of all sins. It's the sin that mysteriously, unfathomably became cultivated in the heart of Satan. It's the sin that we see in, in the Garden of Eden where God's pair exalted themselves above the Lord and above his revealed word. It's the sin that lies at the heart of all other sins. I was chatting to some people a few days ago and I, I said, you know, if I were to ask you what is the sin, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, I guess many people would say, well, it was the sin of wicked homosexuality. No, that's not what the Bible says. Ezekiel chapter 16, the sin of Sodom is the sin of pride. Pride gave birth. Why did they indulge in these wicked, vile acts because they'd become proud. They had 
decentered God and centered themselves. But the question I want to really ask is this, but how did someone so blessed by God, so used by God, become proud to his destruction? The text doesn't tell us. It says it happened. But I think it's still legitimate to ask, How did pride take root in this young man's heart, whom we read earlier in the chapter, who sought God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord? How did it take root? Well, if he was anything like me, and I would guess... Most of us are much like one another. If we look at our own lives, we see that pride rarely comes in an avalanche to engulf us. It begins with tiny little drips and drops. We're confronted with temptation. And like Joseph, we say, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? But then Satan just persists with his temptations. He just persists. He's he's methodical. That's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 6. He is methodical in the way he goes about seeking to entrap us. And he just continues. He persists. And slowly we might say, well, it's only a little one. Um, And God is always there to restore and forgive. Pride rarely comes in an avalanche to engulf us. It just slowly seeks to insert into our thinking that we have done even one thing that we can be proud of. Brothers and sisters, there isn't one good thought you have ever thought, one good word you have ever spoken, one good deed you have ever done that didn't have its root and origin in the kindness, goodness, and mercy of Almighty God. What do you have that you did not first receive? Every virtue we possess, every victory won, every thought of holiness are his alone. Here was another kingly failure. But God had promised another king, a king who one day would not succumb to pride. And he was the one man who had every right to succumb to pride. He was the greatest somebody who ever existed. And yet he said, I can do nothing by myself. John 5.19. This was the hallmark of the king's life. I can do nothing of myself. All he did, he did in the enabling power and grace and help of the Holy Spirit. 
one man who could have boasted refused to boast, I can do nothing of myself. Brothers and sisters, we're at our most vulnerable when we are most experiencing the kindnesses and the blessings of the Lord. And that's why we need to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. We need to be on guard, especially when God's blessings are being poured out upon us individually, familially, congregationally. There isn't one thing this congregation has ever done for good in Bakersfield or beyond. Not one thing at all that originated in themselves. To God all praise and glory. And if you are to, under God, continue to be the blessing that you certainly have been to me, to many beyond me, to You wouldn't believe this perhaps, but let me tell you, to the ends of the earth, you need to be watching and praying. So let me try and just apply this very briefly, five very brief applications. The life of Uzziah is number one, a warning to pastors and elders. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Brothers, God has raised you up and given you responsibility and oversight. God has gifted you and enabled you. But the life of Uzziah is a warning to men like us. A warning to be on guard, to be watching and praying. Isn't it remarkable that almost our Lord Jesus Christ's last words to his disciples before the cross where watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. It's one thing to be tempted and something else to enter into temptation. It's a warning to pastors and elders. It's a warning to husbands and wives. The evangelical church is scarred by the evil of divorce. But perhaps even more than divorce, it's scarred by husbands and wives whose life together does not adorn the gospel and bring glory to Jesus Christ and provide a context in which their children can be raised as godly offspring because that's what God is seeking, Malachi 2.15. God is seeking godly offspring. Brothers and sisters, we need to be watching and praying to guard our marriages. You say, well, Ian, I'm very blessed. I love my wife. King David, no doubt, loved his wife, and in an unguarded moment, he saw a woman bathing, and the rest is history. It's thirdly a warning to Christian fathers and mothers. The blessings of God are to be cherished. They're to be prized. And we're to turn every blessing back to him with thanksgiving, with praise and wonder that he has been so good to us. 
And we need never to presume upon our children and expect because we have family worship with them or bring them to sovereign grace every week or take them to the youth group that, that all will go well with them. We need to be on guard against the insidious intrusion of a prideful spirit. Haven't we done well with our children? They're not like so-and-so's children there. They've got no interest in the gospel. Others come faithfully. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And it's a warning, I think, to congregations and to denominations. I'm Scottish. 1843, 474 ministers left the Church of Scotland and formed the Church of Scotland Free. The Church of Scotland was becoming modernist, liberal, and 474 men left the Church of Scotland and formed this reformed denomination that Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, said, this is the purest church in Christendom. And 30 years later, it was more liberal and modernist than the church it left. People often ask me, I, I, I teach on this subject, wrote a dissertation on it. I say, but how could that happen so rapidly? And I think actually the answer is this. Aren't we doing well? Aren't we something? We are really reformed. We are the truly reformed. I hate that. I hate that. God hates pride. Do you know why salvation is all of grace from beginning to end? That no flesh might boast in the presence of God. Our one boast is Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be noted for. We're to be noted for being boasters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close by just reminding you, I'll tell you where we're going, that it was in the year that King Isaiah died that a man called Isaiah had a vision. In the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah 6 verse 1, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Have you ever connected the vision he has with the opening statement in the year that King Isaiah died? I think there are two aspects. The Lord is saying to Isaiah, your king has died, but your true king marches on. But I also think there's this note. Isaiah had been instructed in the fear of God. And somehow the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, which is loving what he loves and hating what he hates, the fear of the Lord that brings us low, that he might be lifted high, fear of the Lord somehow had become lost to Isaiah. And it's as if the Lord God is coming to his people and saying, your great need is to be reconnected 
to who I am. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His robe filled the temple. And what was it that Isaiah cries out? He has this theophany, this self-disclosure of the living God. And he trembles and he says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I think in a sense, Isaiah is saying, Lord, by nature, I'm leprous. My king, you afflicted with leprosy as a signal of your divine displeasure. But Lord, by nature, I am leprous. How can I ever be of any service to you? And remember how the passage unfolds. Cherubim take coals from the fire in the temple and they burn into Isaiah's lips. The very area where he is going to be the declaratory voice of Almighty God in the nation. And what is the great note that Isaiah sounds throughout the rest of the 66 chapters? Do you know? Do you know the 66 chapters? He keeps calling, calling God one thing in particular again and again and again. The Holy One. The Exalted One. The Set Apart One. That's our great need as individuals, as families, as a congregation, week by week, to be re-encountering the Lord, that we might live in the fear of the Lord, not a fear that causes us to cringe, but a fear that brings us low in order that he might be lifted high. Do you know what God blesses? He blesses the one who reflects in his life or her life. The one who above all feared the Lord and lived to please him and to love what he loves and to hate what he hates, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And he humbled himself even unto death. And you know the next word, first word in Philippians 2, 9, which is great. Therefore, the only man who merited anything from God, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Brothers and sisters, that's the paradigm of the life of faith. Walk in humility before God. And he in due season will exalt you. Resist every temptation to think yourself anything. Deflect every, every word of praise to him. 
to say to yourself every day in life, what do I have that I did not first receive? And if I've received it, why do I make any boast of it? When the Apostle Paul said to me, who am less than the least of all God's people, he actually meant what he was saying. I'm the lowliest of the low. That's the kind of man, that's the kind of woman that God delights to use and delights to bless. Guard yourselves. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. May God bless to us his word.